Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast where every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. My guest today is LaShawn Smith. He is a creator and software developer. He helps people predictably navigate their entrepreneurial journey. And after spending over a decade in some companies you might recognize like Amazon, Microsoft, he uncovered patterns to use process as a tool to win business more often. And he applied his toolkit to more and more businesses, started new businesses, produces feature films, and turns around struggling businesses. How about that for a combination? Well, his expertise in artificial intelligence, behavioral economics, and systems engineering has created a unique talent stack for solving many of today's technical challenges. So really excited about having him on today. He's deployed over $450 million in capital across corporate R&D investments and holds several patents for inventions related to artificial intelligence, computer vision, machine learning, and media streaming. He's launched products that have found their way into the hands of millions of people and wrote a product strategy book you've got to pick up. It is called Value-Based Business Design. It explores how to develop high-growth products in a modern global marketplace. This personal North Star, six words, know thyself, make things, have fun. So welcome our last guest of the year, LaShawn Smith. Hey, LaShawn, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Great to see you. Great to be here today. Well, tell me a little bit about your background. It's very different from most founders. Yeah. So, you know, if we go way back, uh, you know, I'm one of these folks who accidentally figured out entrepreneurship was a lever uh, when I was a kid. And I experimented with so many things, selling candy. I was writing little apps uh, when I was young. And what I really discovered early on was my kind of appeal or, or the, the draw that took me to, um, you know, using the computer as a almost like a freedom tool, right? Like moving without permission is one of the big things that I love. Uh, and along the way, I just kind of um, found that, oh, this thing that I was very passionate about, you know, writing code, creating media, um, there was actually a market for it. There's people would actually pay me for this. So kind of fast forwarding. Uh, you know, for me, I've I've done what I call tasting the buffet. I have been um, in many roles in the software industry, from software developer to UX designer, product manager, and uh, really all those have given me both the empathy to hopefully better manage those types of roles uh, and that type of talent, uh, but also a front row seat at you know tiny companies trying to navigate the software world, um, all the way up to you know working in big tech for uh, quite a long time and learning a lot about you know distribution and some of the things outside of the product piece um, and more so on you know kind of channel and marketing and so you know happy to take today's conversation wherever I think interesting for the audience but for me um, you know I get most energized by the idea that you know even today uh, while so much has changed you can get a laptop and you can turn it into this money-making machine if you kind of focus on the right customers uh, and tackle the right problem absolutely. And you've been in, in big companies, Amazon, Microsoft, as well as, as startups and small companies right. and, and done turnarounds as well. What is the, the dynamic? How is that different in big companies versus smaller companies? Yeah, I think for the 
you know, that, that saying, you know, grass is greener. I've seen both sides where folks are like, oh, I wish I was at a big company. So it was better resourced or I had, you know, better channel support or what have you. And then folks on that side, like, I wish I was in a small company. So there wasn't all this bureaucracy and all this, (laughs) you know, everything moves so slowly. And uh, really what I feel is uh, kind of the split. If you look at the core business, I like to go to that old Peter Drucker, you know, statement, you know, the purpose of business is to create and keep a customer. And basically that means you got to make things and you got to sell things. And in large companies, they are world-class at channel, uh, whether it is, you know, a B2C or B2B product. And at small companies, you have this permission and kind of the process to move really fast um, because you're not, you know, so worried about kind of damaging the brand or uh, cannibalizing an existing revenue stream or any of these types of, of things. And so the core work is very similar, but I find that the strength is, you know, larger companies just uh, have a more mature, you know, kind of you know, making or excuse me, uh, selling arms. So that marketing uh, and sales channel is very strong, uh, which also, you know, is why we see so many mediocre products come out of those that are still successful. Um, Because, you know, the hard part at scale is that channel. And they, you know, I think the folks who stick around, they find ways over time to improve the quality. And at small companies, you know, you really can, you know, you know, speed is on your side. I like to say, you know, the large players move in months and years. The small players move in hours and days. Uh, and anybody moving in weeks is probably on the wrong side of the bet. <laughs> that is a great way to look at it. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, the uh, the big companies, they, they produce things that aren't the best, but because they have that massive momentum and, and the sales motion, they're able to to keep market share and continue growing. Where a lot of times the they, maybe the startups have a better product, but they don't have that that momentum. They don't have the reach. Exactly, and that's really the hard part, right? If we, you know, you know, today where I spend a good chunk of my time is, you know, looking at deals, largely vertical SaaS companies uh, that may be for sale or maybe they're looking for some type of uh, uh, minority investment. And when you look at their customer development process, you know that you know kind of the all the throwback stuff that's been around, you know, for years, you know, lean startup, all of these frameworks that many folks know, uh, it's just alarming how many founders are not, you know, operationalizing these, you know, very foundational elements. And so, you know, they're making decisions off of gut. It's like, you know, I worked in, you know, agriculture industries, you know, for years. So I I understand, you know, the problem. And so now maybe they're running an ag tech business or something like that. Um, And like, that's amazing. I don't think most folks should be diving into, uh, especially a vertical business without that industry experience. But um, at right. the same time, your customer uh, needs to be, you know, sitting at the table, kind of guiding those decisions. And and so it's just surprising to me how many times I, I show up, you know, to someone who's like, well, this isn't quite working. It's like, all right, um, let's look at the last handful of customer conversations. You know, where can I go watch those videos, listen to the audio or read some documents? And as soon as I hear some, you know, excuse, I'm like, all right, like this is core to their problem. And it happens time and time again, even for folks who right. you know, are finding some level of success. Uh, I, I find, you know, you can you can tend to stall out if you don't really operationalize your customer development process. A hundred percent. And, you know, what gets measured gets done. And when you're not measuring, you're not paying attention to those things. It's yeah. like, well, it's not working. Well, you know, how do you how do you know? Exactly. You know, what piece of it is not working? Yeah. 
So far, you've deployed $450 million in capital uh, across companies and investments. What do you look for in that next you know, R&D play? Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about capital deployment is it's, you know, I have friends who have deployed crazy amounts of money, right? Um, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of in the game, right? So a half a billion is is, is in the game. Um, but some of those are quite large deals. And so that's a team sport. You can't take all of that credit. And then others, sure. you know, are follow on or, or what have you. And so when you look at capital deployment, capital allocation, one of the things to me is like, where are you really getting your energy? And I get the most energy at the pre-seed and seed levels. And so I many times will get more energized by, you know, a $250,000 check than, you know, showing up and helping facilitate some B or C or some internal, um, you know, I've done a quite a bit of uh, uh, kind of entrepreneurship where you're taking some chunk of capital and you're redeploying it inside of large corporation to, um, you know, kind of move into some new market. Uh, maybe it's an innovation play. Maybe it is uh, just a gap in your offering. But Regardless of all of those, I find that the smaller checks are where many times the founder or the leader is going to have more autonomy, and that's where I get most energized. And so, you know, what I kind of look for um, on many of these deals are uh, how the founder or the leader is going to think about process. And uh, this this may sound like, well, LaShawn, that's the most tactical, basic thing ever. Again, it's like, you got to have good hygiene. Did you brush your teeth last night, this morning? And so when I show up and look at someone's data room uh, for a deal, um, and and I try to be very quick in diligence, and you know I don't want to talk to someone for three months to go look at a deal. Uh, you know I want to ask a handful of questions even before we get to the NDA and you show me all your bank statements uh, to try to disqualify. Because typically, there is going sure. to be something that's broken in the uh, kind of the shape of the deal, not necessarily that the company's bad or the the folks haven't done the right thing, but it's just not a fit. So to your question, you know, what do I look for in a deal? I am looking for, you know, founders who are obsessed over process and operationalizing, you know, their, their, their customer seat at the table. And they look at free cash flow as core to their success metric. And, you know, Five, 10 years ago, you could chase market share. You could do all sorts of things. That's a playbook that almost all of us know in the SaaS industry. And I think it's a very, very dangerous game to play nowadays. Now, there are still pockets. You know, I'm sure, you know, someone would yell, uh, you know, at me right now and say, oh, LaShawn, let me tell you how we still do it, you know, X, Y, Z. <laughs> it's like, no, um, like all the basics have to be in place. You know, you probably need a dual funnel, low touch, high touch. You probably need... Um, you know, uh, a really simple offering to get started. You know, someone's, um, you know, just kind of getting going. They're in single digit million ARR. Uh, like anytime I see, like, we do this and we do this, we have this developer offering and then we have this, you know, per seat, you know, uh, end user offering. And now we're doing this custom enterprise. I'm like, all right, uh, you know, complexity is probably <laughs> not our friend. Uh, but, yeah. but across the board, uh, I can fairly quickly look at a company and see um, how much are you in control of your own destiny. And the more you've bet on the ecosystem, whether that's the funding ecosystem or certain channel partners to go to market, um, the higher that is, uh, typically the quicker I get to a no, not because you know, you know, those can't work. Many times those will be the most financially successful, but 
I found that those tend to also have the highest variance. And so while they can have huge upside, they can also go to zero. And we're seeing these crazy 80, 90% markdowns in the market right now. Uh, And, you know, I just think for some of the folks in the private um, side of things where maybe they haven't raised around in the last 18 months or so, uh, we, you know, I think folks really got to have a honesty moment and say, oh, uh, you know, I might have to do a down round, like psychologically even, that that feels crunchy, right? And so with the world being so volatile, I believe the more the the founders and the leadership team are in control, the more interesting uh, the business is because they're going to be able to navigate the ship. Now, it could still go to zero, but I'd rather a team sure. be in control of their destiny than um, you know be on something where now they have to go, you know, get permission. Um, again, whether it's go to market, it's it's funding or what have you. And when you say in control of their own destiny, you mean they haven't uh, had a round yet? That's why you're looking for pre-seed and seed um, so that they can make the decision? Yeah, not necessarily haven't had any round, but, you know, let's say somebody's raised uh, just like a really small, you know, 500K, get started, you know, kind of uh, get off. Like the, angel, friends and family yeah. kind of thing. Um, when I see the speed at which someone's executing with effectively no money, you know, half a million, uh, like it tells me a lot, right, on how they're going to move. Yeah. And um, at the same time, there's no real promise. It might be a safe or something. And so it might not even be a priced round. And so, you know, how do you three, four, five X that number? And, you know, that's another thing that I don't believe a lot of investors are truly honest. When you look at, you know, properly managed portfolios, um, you know, the great portfolios are returning two to three X, you know, over, you know, a seven to 10 year period. And so the idea that you know, they're going to go to every founder and say, you know, let's 100 X this thing. Uh, like, yes, they're going to tell that story because they need, you know, that one or two of the 100 Xers to cover all the duds, you know, typical portfolio strategy. Man. Right. Um, but practically, when when all of that settles, how much do they turn return back to their limited partners? Uh, those LPs are getting typically two to three x on their money, and you know often you know you could just put that money in you know VTI or QQQ or something and have made the same amount of money just you know you know buying the full market uh, on the public side. And so I when I say in control, I'm saying you don't let your valuation your 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 paper valuation get ahead of you where you can never grow into it, right? Like, so, because there's a certain point, let's say you've raised at a post, uh, you know, 20, 25 million at some point, but your, your unit economics are still wonky. Like it's a super dangerous place to be because now you yes. may have to go keep raising to stay alive, um, but you're playing a game of chicken because you actually don't know if your business is working. And so when I say stay in control, it's it's really focusing on the order of operations on many of these activities that, um, you know, I, I just see people get I, what I believe the order out um, so often. And, you know, people want financial success. Uh, I would argue I value predictable success over, you know, largest upside. And so that's one of the things I'm always looking for is um, of all the levers that could be pulled to get a company to the next level, um, is the leadership team in control of those? Or do they need to ask permission? Do they need to go through a gatekeeper? Is there something blocking? Uh, this is why I personally am uh, a little put off by, you know, anything in the regulatory uh, space. You know, I don't do healthcare. I don't do fintech. Um, again, not because they're bad businesses. It's just where I can add value and where I see folks being able to really lean in when, when a team is great. Uh, 
I prefer working and supporting folks who are in spaces where, you know, there's no, there's no principal telling you to hurry up and get to class because you're walking the hallways. Right. Right. And that's, that's funny. I mean, there are definitely some regulatory challenges. I, I run a, a SaaS fintech in healthcare. There are barriers yeah. sometimes. I mean, now, now and, the flip you know, side of that, I was going to say is for some folks, you're seeing this in big tech right now on the AI side, they are actually using, you know, compliance and government to drive regulatory capture. And that's a dangerous thing. Um, I believe, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with that term, that's where, you know, typically a large company, they are using the government to pass laws that make it harder for new entrants to come into the market because yes. they make it so challenging to comply. And there is this uh, recent uh, executive order uh, that was uh, that was published uh, recently by the president, and you know, avoiding the politics side of things, I just think it's a ridiculous piece of paper that can't be enforced because um, you know there's so many rules there. I'm like, well, who would have the resources to actually follow these rules? Right. They're a bit more definitive, and you just kind of look at it and the shape of it. It's like it's only going to be the largest of the companies. Uh, you know, open source will get screwed. Small, you know, small companies building models will get screwed. And so, regulatory capture is a tool that large corporations use across industries, not just tech. You see it in pharma, you see it in energy, and it's it's there to to make it so expensive to operate the business as a small player that you you never get off the ground or you don't even try. And so. So um, again, it really depends on your strategy. A lot of the things that I say I don't do, again, are not, it's bad. It's like, if that's not core to your strategy, don't stumble your way or accidentally find your way in that room. You need to walk into that door on purpose. Right, right. Yeah, it has to be a conscious decision. It's not something that you just do on a whim. Exactly. Walk in with your eyes open. Well, one of the things you mentioned was process. That's what you're looking for. And if you're when you're looking at a company, are you looking for a company that has their processes really tightly defined and completely buttoned up? Or are you looking for places where you can go in and make some operational changes or add some process and and get some ma- massive returns because the processes are now in place? Yeah. So I have this very I have a whole set of tenets and principles and all sorts of things that I use to kind of keep myself honest. They're part of my kind of toolkit that I've assembled over the years. Uh, but one of them is early on, you know, if someone says, hey, and, and I deal with very small uh, companies, uh, many times, you know, we're talking half a million, million in EBITDA. So these are very small uh, opportunities. And so uh, I call that out because at a certain point, you know, if you are, if you have a, enough top line, you know, your ARR is big enough, again, you might choose this other path where you can grow um, through funding. And you're just trying to stay alive. Uh, but, you know, increasingly, again, you know, just a quick sidebar, the challenge is who's going to buy you, right? You know, you know, five, seven, 10 years ago, you know, depending on what, what you know, lane you're in, um, you might have Salesforce or Microsoft or, or, or someone who could scoop you up. Uh, and you always had like this escape, you know, valve you could hit if uh, you weren't quite, you know, moving as fast as you would like to. And increasingly, there's just fewer companies who are there to buy you. At the same time, the public markets have really shifted. And so it's really hard to go public. And so you look at what happened with, um, you know, Instacart, that doesn't look great. You know, Clavio, let's see how they kind of pull it together. Stripe can't go public. You know, there's just all these things where like these amazing companies 
are struggling to figure out uh, how to navigate. So if you take someone like Stripe, which is you know very well run, like why do you think your business is going to not get the same level of you know markdown, right? Uh, and so through all of these. Right. To me, it's just like a very dangerous place to play that says like, all right, how can, how long can you stay alive? Because many of your competitors are just not going to stay in business. So getting back to, to process, I like to say, keep it simple, 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 one channel, one product, one process. And, you know, different leaders want to run their business in different ways. I don't believe that you should over document things. But if you aren't writing down your process, like you can't point me to a document that other people on the team have and that says, this is you know, not just like this is how we onboard a customer or this is how we do customer support. Like, no, how do you listen to your customer, make something, experiment, um, figure out if that's going to stay in the, the you know, production version of the product and go you know, check the loop and go back to the customer and really like, do you have a real flywheel? And for some folks, you know, they want to write decks. Other folks want to write documents. Other folks, you know, I've seen very technical teams where a lot of this stuff gets buried in their PM tools. Uh, I'm a big fan of tools like Linear, um, which are like lighter versions of like Jira or other kind of technical tools um, to manage the actual software development process. And I've seen teams kind of even put some of that information in the tool, right, in the project management tool. Uh, and so there's all sorts of ways to do it. Um, I'm just saying, like, if you don't do it and you can't quickly show me how you take customer signal and turn it into product and do it in a, in a measurable, demonstrable manner, uh, I just feel like you're playing with fire. And so I'm always just looking for variability. Uh, getting more tactical, uh, I think the, you know, it's very common for, let's say, whoever your CMO is, or maybe, you know, if it's a small team, maybe you just got, you know, one person responsible for product, maybe one for, for sales and marketing. But let's say you have more of a medium-sized company, um, you know, that's kind of, you know, has some departments, you have executives for each of these. It's very common to say, all right, um, you know, on the marketing side, we have this customer data platform, you know, CDP. And, you know, we have all this telemetry coming in. So we're measuring all the touch points for the customer. And like you can see these very sophisticated things. And it's like, OK, you got some process. You're using some smart tools. And then you go say, all right, let me talk to your CTO. And you talk to the CTO. And it's like, oh, we have this system. We have these things like, all right, so show me how these two departments talk to each other. Oh, well, you know, CMO and the CTO, they have a monthly <laughs> business review or like something silly. I'm like, time out. Right. Before you go getting all sophisticated per department. Um, tie the company together. And so when I'm talking about process, it's not just um, per discipline. It is the baton that you know is continually, hopefully, being handed back and forth across the disciplines. That is so important. Otherwise, you're just building silos. And the bigger you get, the deeper those silos are and the more separation you have. Right. And a callback to the earlier part of this conversation, I've met folks, I mean, I've been in this situation before. I worked, uh, you know, when I was at Microsoft, I worked on multiple SaaS products, uh, also on the consumer side. And I can't take credit for a lot of the success on those products just because we built something and, you know, it's, you know, world-class, you know, kind of engineering process and all those things, like that's a given. But again, I can't take credit for that. But but the real thing I can't take credit for is I just took this product and put it in this amazing world-class you know, sales channel. And as long as I get, you know, uh, for folks who aren't familiar with kind of how it works in, in these situations, there's typically a global sales organization that then gets split up by region. 
And then each region has some type of operational cadence where they might have a weekly meeting, a monthly meeting, maybe every quarter they get together in person, every year they go to a big conference together. There, there's some type of rhythm to how the sales organization moves. And so if you are an engineering or product leader who's built some type of SaaS product and now you want to you know, you sell it, you have to go convince those sales team to put you on their book. And typically what that means is you have to find some incentive so whether it's commissions or some of these weird internal credit systems where they're not really money, but they impact a salesperson's bonus, you have to go figure out how to get that, you know, get your product on their list of things to sell. And, you know, like that's like that could be 20, 30 percent of your job is trying to convince folks like, oh, you really should sell my thing. And they're like, why should I sell your thing? Well, this thing over here is going to pay me, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to get, you know, you know, you know, double the bonus. And so there's a whole dance there where, you know, if you get really good at that, I've seen people just make their careers, like they're just really good at like, you know, getting their product in this existing channel, um, you're off to the races. But if you take all of those lessons um, and that toolkit of being successful in the big company and you go try to take it to your, you know, 20 million ARR SaaS company, like it's not going to work. You, you don't have, you know, the same luxuries uh, to kind of use that as a cheat code. And so the accountability is so much higher. Uh, you know, again, the upside is high because, again, you're, you're in control of, of your destiny. But at the same time, I just think it's very dangerous to try to replicate the model in these large, uh, you know, big tech companies um, inside of a startup. No, oh, without a doubt. Yeah, what works at that level doesn't, doesn't work the same right. way in a startup. So how do those startups compete with the giant sales machines of the big companies? Well, I have a, a two things. Uh, one is I'm, I love the callbacks because sometimes we say something I'm like, "Oh, we we already hit on a, a, an important part. Let's underscore it." Uh, you know, operationalizing your customer development process and, you know, again, these are words that I think almost everyone says like, "Oh, I do that." And then it's like, "Okay, but like how serious are you about that?" Um, you know, I have this for right. folks who are just getting started, um, you know, maybe they're they haven't you know they're pre-launch even. Uh, I say, where have you documented the last 100 conversations that you, as the founder, have had with the uh, with your customers? And if they're like, oh well, we hired this UR company or you know or user research company, or we went over here to this conference and we met a few folks, and it's like it just sounds like it's all kind of sporadic or you know reactive, like thumbs down. Like if you haven't spoken to a legit hundred people, you know, that could be, you know, Zoom plus, you know, in real life or what have you, but like a legit hundred people and you can't point to a spreadsheet or however you, you track things um, of what you learned and what you're going to try to do. Uh, like you're not operationalizing your customer development process. So when I use that word, like I'm talking like you really are trying to get into, you know, a rhythm there. And so for, you know, for, for SaaS companies who are just trying to figure out, all right, how do I kind of get the ball rolling? I think number one is, is really operationalizing that process. And then number two is having some real accountability. Uh, it's really easy, you know, when you, you quite, you know, I don't even, let's not even talk about product market fit, like even before there, do you even know who your market is? Right. Uh, and you yeah. know, yeah. You know, everyone's had to go whip out a, a sizing, you know, Tam, Sam, Som slide on like, you know, how big is your market and, and all of that. Uh, but, like, what's the real answer? Like, do you really know who your market is? Is that market really there? Is their pain point as acute as you believe? Is it as frequent as you uh, as you state? And I find a lot of folks swimming in that. And 
they're just not coming back to that core piece that maybe they don't really have as strong of a market and they're already in execution mode. Um, and that's dangerous yes, because they're yes. like, but I got to execute. I got to go make this thing or I, I'm going to run out of money. I got to <laughs> keep these folks that I've hired engaged. Like I got to go do this thing. And so I think the earlier that you can uh, in the process, do that customer development, make sure you validate the market uh, before you're under any real anxiety to kind of like, you know, start compounding the better. And I don't have a great answer on, you know, how does somebody go back and refactor that, you know, if they're already out the barns and they're like, oh, crap, you know, maybe there is a uh, a gap in how I've defined the market. I think in that case, you got to go back to your investors and, you know, any of your advisors and just have really honest conversations, uh, you know, not a total reset, but it's like, if you let that get too far away from you, you're really playing with fire. Right, right. It, it's not something that you can just bury and hope that it gets better because it it won't. If anything, it'll just get yeah, worse. And the dangerous thing with SaaS, you know, you know, I, I like to say, you know, SaaS is one of the best business models ever created. I mean, it's why I get so interested. Um, I, I effectively look at two types of businesses, um, you know, local B2B companies. Uh, they have kind of a local monopoly kind of built in if you get it right. You know, no one from St. Louis is going down to Orlando um, on a whim. Like maybe folks expand every once in a while. You'll see a private equity company kind of roll up a bunch of little local businesses. But, um, but that and vertical SaaS. And the reason I love those two spaces is because, again, you have... Uh, the most control of your destiny. And for folks who say like, well, no, I want to build a platform company. I want to build an infrastructure company. You're almost forced to, you know, kind of grow as fast as possible, kind of the, you know, the, the blitz scale model, um, because your company will become someone else's product or feature very quickly. If you look at, you know, the the yeah. uh, OpenAI uh, just recently had their dev day and they announced uh, a set of tools around uh, an assistant API. And, I've been pitched multiple of these companies over the last year. It's like, we have some assistant API. And so I'm like, all right, uh, I don't know who's going to fix this, but I don't believe your company is going to be what the big companies bet on. There's going to be some larger company that's going to turn this into a feature and give it away for free. And, you know, sure enough, you know, right. here we have it. And and now, you know, Google and, and Anthropic and everyone else will just, uh, you know, offer their own version of that as well. And so for, you know, companies who are trying to figure out where to play, um, I love the application layer of things um, because infrastructure tends to be highly capital intensive and uh, monopolistic. And so most folks will yes. die, right? Whereas if you're more in a vertical space, uh, you get to bring your domain expertise. It's a lot easier to figure out where are the humans who are going to buy this. You know, if you say my product's for everyone, it's really hard to go figure out a channel strategy. And you're likely uh, going to be a complement uh, to these large infrastructure partners. And so in some cases, you may be able to go to market with them. And so there's all sorts of reasons why kind of that's the play. Um, the luxury I have as uh, as an investor is, you know, I can have multiple of these bets that in aggregate turn out to be a, a sizable number. If, you know, there is a founder and they're like, okay, well, I don't want to go chase this business that can only ever be, you know, a particular size. Again, I think there's a balance on um, back again, call back to how you think about raising capital, because I've seen so many folks where the cap table looks so ridiculous and, you know, not just the quality of investors, yeah. but I'm like, okay, your only way out on this thing, the way you've constructed your cap table, um, is you had to go public. This is not a company that's going to go public. Right. And so they're, they're just in this 
the dead this, end. This weird disillusioned space where it's like, okay, even if you got this thing to 80, 90 million, um, like who's going to buy you? Like, like the, the economics here don't speak to going public. Like, like it's just a weird place. Like what's your liquidity event? And, you know, give you a, a more yeah. tactical example. I have, uh, we're, in a, we're in a process of rolling together a couple of very tiny uh, bets that I've made into a SaaS product. Is, uh, we call it a super app for solopreneurs. Uh, and no matter how I look at the analysis on this, it's not a big business, right? But I love the customer segment and I ha- there's clear sight on how the operator and the team, you know, who are pulling all that all together, how they can they can win without other people's permission. And I'm like, okay, you know, this may never become more than a ten million dollar business, um, but we might be able to do that with you know almost no additional outside capital. And so those to me are really exciting times because you get to go chase this you know customer problem, uh, and you're not spending you know. You know, twenty percent, sometimes half of your time fundraising. You get to spend your time talking to customers and making the thing. And that's where the real fun is, anyway. Yeah. I mean, that that's why we build businesses. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people love you know hopping on a plane, you know, eating that steak dinner, trying to convince someone to to write the check. Um, it's just it's not the thing that energizes me. It's also why you know now that I'm on the other side of the table, I try to be very efficient. I don't want a lot of song and dance. Uh, here's the term sheet. Uh, if that doesn't work, um, if I thought you were an interesting enough person to to take the time to see if we could, you know, have a financial transaction, I probably think you're an interesting person. Um, I'm happy to use my social capital to introduce you to someone else, right? Um, and so the the you know the dance that we see so many folks doing, where they're spending so much of their time trying to get, you know. They talk to 150, 200 investors, and they're just like, "Okay, I only need one." Um, you know, maybe nowadays you need two or three um, because even the leads aren't writing as large of checks. Uh, if you if you look at that process, to me, that it's almost like you need a third co-founder if you got two people. Um, you know, you need somebody to go do sales and marketing. You need somebody to do investor relations, and then you need somebody to actually go make the thing. And when I see someone who's like, "Well, I do all three of those," and I'm like, "Man, you're creating a very stressful life." <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Well, you mentioned AI, and you got some pretty deep experience there in behavioral economics. How have you used those two things to solve business problems? Yeah, let's start with BE. So, behavioral economics for folks who don't aren't familiar with it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna generalize, so all the the BE experts will be yelling at me again for for simplifying <laughs> this. But uh, it's the study of how we make decisions around time and money, and the Punchline there is, you know, anyone who's taken econ classes, um, most frameworks assume that all the actors in the system are rational. And we know that's just not true. The system's filled with humans. Right. Like they're not rational. We make irrational decisions all the time and not just on the consumer side. Like I've been in, you know, high pressure, big ticket sales, um, you know, where we're trying to convince some C-suite exec to make a decision on what have you. And their daughter likes something or they saw something on the news and then they came in the next day and say, let's do it. And I'm like, like, there's no, you know, they, they didn't have a bottoms up analysis strategy from their corporate team that like gave them the right advice. Like people make emotional decisions all the time and it doesn't yes. mean we should exploit it, um, but it needs to be like integrated into our product process. And so BE um, really is thinking, what are the levers that you can pull uh, to get folks to uh, see the value and buy your um, buy your product. Now, 
the reason that gets connected to a lot of the automation, sometimes people might think, well, that what does it have to do with systems engineering or process automation or AI or any of these things that seem to be more rigid? Um, I believe what what the big opportunity today is is to kind of look at your core, uh, you know, business um, functions. So let's put sales and marketing in one big bucket. Let's put you know delivery, R and D, whatever you want to call it, the product in one bucket, and then operations, support, what have you, in a third bucket. So yes, we can make eight buckets, seventeen buckets. We could have all sorts of departments, but for now, for this you know example, we're going to have three. Um, if you look through those three, you can just start to to the earlier point, have one process that says, okay, here's our funnel described as a sequential pro- uh, process. Then here's our, you know, the product they're actually going to deliver. Here's our support structure, whether it's onboarding, customer success, any service. And you're trying to figure out how linear can I make this whole, like how, this, this flow and have as few decision trees. Uh, you're going to have some, but you're trying to figure out how can I streamline that as much as possible. And then you're just really looking at, all right, what are the jobs or the tasks within each of these little bundles of work? Uh, and then asking yourself, okay, what are the metrics I'm going to use to go measure how I move through each of these? It's not worth it to just write these down and not say we're going to measure it to your earlier point. If you're not measuring it, um, you're not going to really pay attention. Uh, And then once you have all of that, it's very easy to look at today's tools and they're moving so quickly to say, all right, which of these AI tools or AI enabled tools uh, can help this particular task at this particular step in the process um, increase, right? You're not, you're not speculating, trying to be, you know, a Gartner researcher or, or something silly. You're just like, I want this number to go up. And then you just use that to look across your your, your process. And that's why I believe process engineering is, is really the muscle. Um, it's not about being a good evaluator of AI tools. It's how optimized is your business process. And then from there, it's very easy to figure out, all right, which, you know, which of these new tools are going to help me, many which will be machine learning or AI enabled. Uh, but I don't like the idea of like some new flashy video pops up on YouTube and, you know, these keynotes are getting better, all the messaging is getting better. And like, you could just find yourself trying to parse all the new products that are out there. And no, go grocery shopping, make your list and say, here are the tasks that need to move. Like who can solve these? And if they can't solve them, then ignore that, um, whatever the shiny toy is and get back to your single process. I think that's something that uh, I talk to entrepreneurs about this all the time and that's chasing shiny objects. And, And it's something it's so hard, especially in the environment today to not do that. Yeah. And it's also critical. Yeah. And, and if you look at, you know, what, what is generative, let's, let's kind of focus on something very tactical. Gen AI, generative AI, um, I think is that has the best potential use case. So amazing demos, maybe people are lightly using them. I'm very bullish on Gen AI. Uh, but the idea that, you know, a large company is ready to fully outsource, you know, you know, all of their customer support or all of their, you know, their SDR process or something like that to to a bot. I just don't believe we're there. Uh, I also think that's why, you know, the co-pilot uh, kind of, you know, product category is where the large players are uh, focusing because they know we're not quite ready for truly autonomous um, you know, agents, you know, across the board on these systems that have so many edge cases because humans need to talk to each other. Uh, and so yes. And so again, like finding the perfect tool where you can totally move to an autom- autonomous process for most most companies, I don't think that's practical. And the reason I was I was referring to you know this 
this kind of solopreneur focused app that uh, we're kind of taking a few small SaaS um, you know pieces and kind of rolling them together is you know if you have if you're a legit solopreneur but if you're a micro entrepreneur and so you got you know less than ten people at your company um, there are ways where I believe you can go fully autonomous and I think those businesses are going to have a totally new competitive advantage because there's so few humans the orchestration of all of these processes and tasks and workflows are going to be very easy. And so I think in that case, they're going to be, you know, a class of companies that are really giving that type of customer um, like a new superpower. But, you know, if you're like, I got 150, 200 people, most of the AI tools today are going to be co-pilots at best. Um, but even then, they're amazing deals, right? Uh, you know, if you look at, you know, sure. Uh, I, I think Copilot is thirty bucks. You know, let's say you're paying ten dollars for the Microsoft subscription, kind of the base subscription. On top of that, um, at forty dollars a month, like every employee should should have that, right? Uh, you're like whatever your right. your, your yeah. normalized per hour you know uh, rate is for your employees. Um, like that forty dollars is the best deal going. And so to me, that's what it is. It's like go get the off the shelf. You don't need a bunch of consultants to implement AI tools that just let you talk to your documents. You know, the syntax for that Excel form formula you, you, you kind of forgot over the years or uh, yeah. I'm, I'm in another language and I don't know how, you know, I could go to Stack Overflow, but I could just stay in the flow and, and type this. No matter where you're at in, in the organization, I think those tools are the most valuable today. And then over the next few years, we're going to actually see these autonomous, the autopilots show up. Um, I think uh, we're still a little bit early for that. Well, tell me about values-based business design. Great book. And uh, what would readers learn from the book? Yeah, so I wrote that book after talking to early stage product managers inside of, you know, uh, both startup and uh, big tech companies. And I found a pattern where folks were, you know, just copying their competitor, right? And it's just like, okay, yes, um, yes. you know, like, uh, let's take let's take a company like Amplitude. If folks aren't familiar with them, they're a, uh, they're kind of a CDP. And so they track all of these product analytics, and you can go figure out um, what parts of your product are, are, are customers using. And, you know, I would see people say like, we, we're we competing against Amplitude and we are going to um, uh, do all of their features plus these other two. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, how do you know that those other, like you don't have their data. Like, like maybe they want to stop selling those features. Maybe customers don't want them or maybe they're wildly unprofitable. Like, you know, looking at the polished marketing and then saying like, we're going to copy that. Like, I just think that's a horrible product strategy um, because you really don't have any data right. on what's working or not. Um, and the flip is going back to kind of who is your customer? What is their core pain point uh, that's reoccurring that many of them have that they have the willingness to pay? Like all these things have to compound. Uh, I think the folks over at Intercom have this uh, framework called RICE, uh, reach, impact, your confidence level, uh, you know, on how you can um, execute and then level of effort E. Uh, and that little framework and those types of frameworks, like, you know, all of these things are rules of thumb. And so you also can't take a framework from some other company and be like, I'm just going to do that word for word. But I do believe that we end right. up with these situations where you can kind of figure out, all right, uh, how am I going to uh, prioritize where I focus? And so with that background, my book um, really is anchored on, all right, well, what do you control? You control who you are. Uh, you control why you are serving this customer. And so 
values-based business design is not value. It's not about value proposition. Um, you, you need a value prop. This is about what do you stand for? And I'll take it further. What values do you stand for to the point that you're willing to shut your business down to protect? It's like, if we can't deliver on these values, yeah. we'll close up shop. And that's a promise that so few companies are willing to make nowadays that um, the premise of the book for folks who don't have time to read it is if you can find the right customer audience and you can make the right values based promises and you're willing to go out of business. And that's like the hard thing because you can say, well, we're going to cheat and we're going to you're going to you know stick to this this uh, this value. But but right now. We, we really got to get to this next funding round or we got to turn the corner on this this quarter or what have you. And like, you, you, you know, you don't do the right thing. I believe it's a massive customer and competitive advantage because most leaders won't do it. Right. And and so that's, the yeah, that's right. And so just you know, putting it in very simple terms, if you think about you know, what values you might look for in a, you know, a relationship or romantic partnership, what values would you want your kids to live? If you start thinking about what are those types of words, those are the types of words that I think when folks go through this exercise, they tend to see. And someone might say, well, I'm in some really stodgy, boring enterprise SaaS category. Like this just all sounds like fluffy stuff. Like, like what does that matter? Um, it, it will permeate in, you know, the person writing the marketing, marketing copy for your landing page. It will permeate into your sales collateral. It'll permeate into product strategy, you know, roadmap d- discussions. And so many times folks are being highly transactional. They're just copying or following the competitor. And they're just like, why, why does this not connect? And what I believe, this is the insight that led me to this, is um, no matter if you are a C-suite executive, you're a college hire, you're, you're, you're you know, a consumer um, who cares nothing about technology on the day-to-day, we're all conditioned to respond to stories. And the way to package up corporate stories is through, um, you know, heroes and challenges and how do they navigate those challenges? I believe it's through values. And so, you know, if you're if folks have ever heard of a four quadrant movie, that's what big Hollywood calls a movie that, you know, they want to appeal to everyone. You know, a Marvel movie would be that it means all ages, all you know, genders, like everybody can go and watch this Marvel movie. And those are the hardest movies to market because you got to be everywhere. Like that's why these things have to right. be so massive. And um, and for most people, uh, you're starting a company, you're not going to be as well capitalized as Disney to go market a Marvel movie. So when you get to your SaaS company, if you can go figure out here are the six values, eight values that um, we are going to, you know, we're willing to go out of business to defend. Um, it becomes really easy for folks to, um, you know, go through that process of, you know, no trust buy, um, you know, the, the flow keeps going retain, recommend, what have you. And at the top of that, they're like, well, why should I trust this company? Once they get the, the piece that you're living and breathing on whatever values that you state, um, it's so, so easy for them to kind of get to the next stage of the funnel. And I think this may be the most important part. Folks who are turned off by your values, like it's okay to be polarizing. Um, yeah. They're going to opt out early on. And you want that. So you don't waste time dealing with prospects that are never going to convert. And so the the reason this seems like a, you know, it's, it's almost like this soft mindset 
you know, culture type book. Uh, but really, I believe that uh, it is a it's a strat- it's a product strategy book because you know if you think about like Simon Sinek, start with why those types of things. Those are concepts that we know, but it's like, well, how do we go put that into use? And I think one of those ways is yeah. memorializing what the company truly stands for. Uh, and then you don't punk out and quit or change the flow when things get hard. Um, one, one quick example, um, I think it was, well, I don't want to misquote the company, um, but it was one of the large CPG companies that made uh, that makes paper towels. And they had a commitment on deforestation and trees, and they weren't going to go, uh, you know, chop down trees in places that there wasn't a good, you know, replacement strategy. Uh, and somewhere during the pandemic, you know, they needed more volume. You know, remember toilet paper and everything was flying off. Oh yeah, and like they yeah. went and like got some forests that they said they would never touch. Um, and then they had to walk back this statement because it was part of like some ESG strategy or what have you. And it's just like, don't make the promise if you can't keep it. And it means that at some point you're going to likely lose money. You're going to leave money on the table to go make that call. But I believe that will make your business and your customer base more durable. And, you know, getting back to the thread of this conversation of, you know, kind of staying in control when you're on a certain path, you know, if you're a private startup and you're trying to get to your your liquidity path, whether that's IPO or acquisition, um, you're going to have these moments where, you know, someone on your board, one of your LPs are going to call you up and say like, well, you can't do that. And you have to create a system that leaves you in control that says, oh, yes, I can. And we are doing this. Uh, this is the right thing for the longevity of the business. And that's so challenging to do just from an internal courage point. Um, you don't want your cap table or your board structure or some other thing forcing your hand where it's not even an option. Yes, yes. And I think that that's really, really good point. Not only you, you probably will leave some revenue on the table at, at some point, but I think on the other side, you get a lot more revenue because you do commit. Yeah. And you certainly get significantly more employee engagement. Exactly. Uh, when you, you, you're, you're bold on those values because they are in, they're committed. And it's not just a, a financial thing of, hey, I'm, I'm here because I'm getting a paycheck. They believe in the mission. Right. And, and I think that's really, really important yeah. in engagement. Yeah. And I was going to say, it's also, you know, as, as leaders, operators, you know, you have to, I believe, do the soul searching to make sure you can communicate things properly. Um, I think the pandemic and the, you know, remote and hybrid work policies are a great example of this. Um, I'm a big believer that if you're doing very innovative tech uh, that is ambiguous. You don't really know how you're going to solve this. And you have a big demographic shift, young workers, older workers with a ton of experience. People should be in the office. Like I just, that's my personal piece. But here's the thing. I don't have a problem if someone says you have to be in the office. I have a problem with someone saying you don't have to be in the office. And then six months later, they say you have to be in the office. Like that is the most ridiculous, like the, like the, the flopping. Right. And it's just right. like, I move my family and like all this stuff, like that's what's broken. And that's that violation that we see. And that's a, you know, maybe a simple example, but folks can understand. Um, you don't want your leaders saying like, oh, we're changing, our, you know, our policy has changed. No, when I hear that, what I hear is potentially your values have shifted and your employees, your investors, your vendors, your customers, they don't want to be um, in business with someone who is constantly shifting um, how they value and, and perceive the world. And so the more you can articulate a set of durable tenets, I think is very valuable. Uh, and they, they don't always have to be touchy-filly. When I was at uh, Amazon, there was uh, this acronym CPS. 
And it was, you know, three customer benefits that you should try to never violate. So you could you could have a fourth, fifth benefit, but you had to have, you know, these three. And it was convenience, price, and selection. And so, you know, the premise is customers want convenience, they want low prices, and they want choice, you know, through a broad selection of products. And mm-hmm. If you had a new product, it doesn't matter if it was on the grocery side, on commerce, on AWS, like it didn't really matter. Um, if you if you violated one of those three, that was probably uh, a product that was going to have a much harder time getting through the funding and support process inside the company. And so when I say, you know, these values, it's it's always it's not always like, you know, a culture poster that you put and it's like, you know, stay curious. Like, I love that one. Right. Because I think, you know, entrepreneurship yeah. is really just a proxy for ongoing lifelong learning. And that's why I get so energized by it. But those are examples, CPS, those are examples of consumer or customer focused values uh, that you're willing to protect at almost all costs. And what are all costs? uh, The the existence of the business. And so, uh, so many times, again, I think folks kind of rush in and they're like, oh, that soft, fluffy stuff. I don't care about that. I'll get to that later. I'll hire some consultant. They'll they'll fix that up, and then your customers, your employees, they know when it's fake. They know when it's a it's just kind of you know. yes, hundred percent. And you have your own values as well. So you've got your your six word north star: know thyself, make things, stay free. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what that means to you and how it guides your actions. So. I don't know about you, maybe many of your listeners, uh, you talked about shiny object syndrome. I get so easily distracted. There's so many new cool things yes. out there. And I had to write down what I what I felt was as short as possible, uh, my daily rule book. So LaShawn, don't get off course. Don't go doing crazy things. <laughs> and so I have to know who I am. And a lot of this is is about happiness and how, you know, how much joy and positive energy do you get throughout your your day, week, month. Uh, you know, I've had the luxury of having an exit um, from a previous business, uh, but I also had many failed businesses, right? So I got all these reasons why, you know, past businesses did not work. Um, I eventually got to a point where I did have, you know, some financial success. And, and you know, that was almost more dangerous for me because now I can like do all these things. I was, you know, doing some real estate stuff and I uh, was like, all right, I want to be in, you know, an LP in your foot. Like I was it just being silly, right? And I had to hone in and say, okay, what's the rule book? Someone is going to approach you over the next few days that uh, maybe you know, maybe you've never met, uh, and they're going to give you an opportunity, LaShawn, and you need to be able to quickly look at that and say, um, should I do that or not? And so know thyself means, you know, that's uh, from the, the, the Greek statement. Um, and, you know, there's a great Wikipedia article on that. So I didn't write those words. I, I just... Uh, it just really resonated with me. So that became one of my pillars. Uh, but I got to know who I am. And just because I can do something does not mean I should. It's kind of the ikigai concept from yeah. Japan. Uh, the next one is, for me, if I get too deep into managing the people or uh, you, know, you know, doing fundraising or any of those types of things, low, low energy. And so I need to be close to making things. And so even today, you know, while no one's using any of my production code in any of my businesses, um, I'm still, you know, about probably six to eight hours a week uh, writing code because like it helps me stay connected to what I'm doing. And, you know, for a designer, maybe they're in Figma, it's still doing some some things. You know, if it's for a writer, maybe they're, um, you know, writing, <coughs> writing memos or whatever. But I believe that if you're only, you know, as I got further along in my corporate career, I, I would find like I could go almost a whole week and all my every my whole day 
was two things. In a one-on-one, having conversations with someone for whatever reason, you know, one of my directs, somebody on my org, a peer, uh, you know, a manager or skip level, um, or I was in a large meeting reading some document and giving feedback for decisions that folks didn't feel like they were empowered to make or couldn't make before they came to me. I was like, this is a silly way to move through life, right? Um, Like I got into technology to make stuff. Uh, And so I know that for me, if I get too far away from that, um, I'm going to have bad energy. And then the last has been the theme of this conversation. Um, I don't like hierarchy. I don't chase status. I don't love the things where if I win, it comes, you know, with the asterisk that someone had to give me permission. And I found that the more I lean into things that keep my autonomy, I structure my businesses where we can go where we want to go. Um, I have more energy and that energy translates into us finding more success. Uh, And that's, I think, the thing that is so hard for some folks to internalize is that just because mathematically you have a path on, you know, option A and B and you're like, B is going to make me more money. It doesn't mean you have the psychological um, or the emotional budget to go actually stick that out. And so if you know yourself, right. um, then you will know that, you know, for me, I got to be doing things where I'm close to the making and I got to do things that give me autonomy. And so that's why I use that. And I would push for anyone maybe as a takeaway from from today's conversation, you know, number one, System, system, systems, operationalize those things um, and make sure the customers that see at the table. But then number two, figure out your short constitution that's going to keep you honest. Uh, and it you know, may look very different than my six words, but if you find yourself writing more than eight words, it's probably too, too long because it needs to be your constant, constant razor throughout your day as you're making decisions. Outstanding. Well, where can people learn more about you online? Yeah, I am. Uh, the name of my company is Kager Investments. Uh, you know, it's that's from the financial term uh, compound annual growth rate. I love that because it's not just about compounding money, but compounding our personal development, our relationships. Uh, you know, that that statement, you know, if you get one percent better a day, uh, you're going to compound your way to greatness. <clears throat> and uh, so right. folks can reach out on our, our group email there at grow at com. And then if anyone just wants to catch up um, about anything related to uh, vertical SaaS, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Twitter. I'm just LaShawn, L-A-S-E-A-N, uh, last name Smith. Fantastic. We'll make sure and link both of those in the show notes. Excellent. Great to hang out. LaShawn, fantastic conversation. Yes, yes, man. It's so great to have you on the show today. Likewise. Well, thanks again, LaShawn, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and resources. You can learn more about LaShawn. His company is Kager.com, C-A-G-R, like compounded annual growth rate, Kager.com. And of course, check him out on all socials as well. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast. Everyone who subscribes or shares this week gets a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club because, you know, that's a gift that keeps on giving the whole year round, Clark. Well, join us next Tuesday as we kick off 2024 with Alan Smith. And over the last 12 years, Alan has created and sold over $130 million in products and services, built teams up to 100 people. And in that process, sold 3 million books. I bet you have them because I do. He and his team at Strategizer created one of the world's most popular business systems and had a lot of fun doing it. Be sure and check out that episode. And then next Thursday, as we kick off 2024, fitness is all the rage. And so you'll see a lot of commercials about that. We're going to do it a little bit differently. We have a guest, Ollie Wood, who is the founder of The Body Reset. 
and he will tell us how to run our body like a business. Great insights, health, fitness, taking care of yourself as a leader, and so I will see you there. And as always, Happy New Year and enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.